2: Welcome to season two of Censored. I'm Eva Vertnach, a historian who reads literature to avoid real work. I'm beginning my journey into the season two blacklist with Molly Keane's Two Days in Aragon, which was published in 1942. I can't even tell you how excited I was to see Molly Keane's name on the blacklist. I was in a research library, so the dance of joy was all internal. I'm a huge Molly Keane fan and couldn't wait to read this book. And a similarly enthusiastic guest is joining me. Regan Hutchins is an independent radio producer, podcaster and shameless Molly fan. Although Molly has her admirers, she's not one of the international superstars of Irish literature. Keane has also never been famous for being censored. Of the 11 books she wrote while censorship was in force, this was the only one that was deemed indecent or obscene. I'm pretty surprised that the censors didn't notice the lesbian plotline in her 1934 book, Devoted Ladies, because it's full of obviously gay characters. But it was never banned, and this one was. I love Molly Keane because she has a razor-sharp eye for human frailty. Her big house novels are sumptuous and glorious and grand with beautiful gardens and fantastic weather. But she's ruthlessly honest while being very subtle. I could read her endlessly. This book was published under her pen name, M.J. Farrell, which she used from 1926 to 1952. She stopped publishing until 1981 when she reappeared as Molly Keane, her own name, with Good Behaviour. Now there is remarkably little booze in this book compared to for example good behaviour which is saturated in cocktails. The beverage of this book is strong black tea Irish style. I wouldn't recommend adding cream to your tea as one of the characters does in this book. In the interests of science I tried it and it was revolting. Cream, rather than milk, was old-fashioned and unusual even by the 1920s when this book was set. Very strong, milky black tea, the mainstay of most Irish households, sums up this book. Whether drunk on your own in a quiet moment to refresh and collect yourself, or shared with another during a chat, tea is everything at all times. Now I won't judge you if you feel the need for something stronger, me and Regan were on the gin during our recording session, after all. Food also has a central role in Keane's books, and you may feel a desperate need for an iced coffee cake or cress sandwiches after reading this book. Firstly, a brief plot summary. There's quite a lot going on, so I'll try and compress it. The book is set in a big house, Aragon, lived in by Mrs Fox with her two daughters, Gronya and Sylvia. Gronia is indolent but sensual, while Sylvia is neat, precise and contained. And Pigeon, an elderly eccentric relative, lives with them. But the most powerful and interesting character of the book is Nan O'Neill, who was the children's nanny and Mrs. Fox's nurse during her pregnancies. Nan is an illegitimate child of the Fox family. Her mother was a servant made pregnant by a young man of the house who roved the darkened corridors of Aragon. She minds Aunt Pigeon, the doddery, potentially embarrassing old lady, keeping her fed and housed upstairs in the old nursery. Nan's son Foley is as magnetic a personality as she is a horseman who can charm animals, men, and women with equal ease. He's also a total ride who wears jodfers really well. Most of the plot is driven by the affair between Foley and Gronia, how to conceal it and the consequences of that concealment. Enmeshed with the family drama is a political storyline because the War of Independence is underway. The British soldiers who play tennis with the Fox girls travel to the big house through a hostile landscape. Keane is sharply critical of the motives of the IRA and their collaborators which may not have endeared her to the censors in the 40s. One IRA man is called Killer Denny because he uses or kills men and women without a qualm. The boys who won the war were important men in post-independence Ireland, getting elected on the basis of their patriotic service in the 20s. So was it politics or filth in Two Days of Aragon that incurred the censors' wrath? I worked out pretty quickly why this book was probably banned because Molly managed to offend the censors on page two when she described Gronia as a slut who refused eligible young men of her own class because they had no skill for love making and could hardly hold her hand. Instead she turns to Foley O'Neill and carries on an affair in the woods and out of the way places. Gronia chooses riding a Catholic horse dealer in a field instead of respectable marriage to a nice boring Protestant boy. Worse still, Foley is the son of an illegitimate servant. Gráinne knows the affair is deeply transgressive and would cause great scandal and this particular quote from page 15 is revelatory of how she herself sees it. For a fox, a daughter of Aragon, to carry on an affair with an O'Neill of the mountain was as wrong, Gráinne knew, to nan as the love of black and white people seemed to her. It's telling that Gráinne sees the social gulf between herself and Foley as wide as the racial chasm between black and white people. There were very few people of colour in Ireland in the 1920s, so this simile relies on racism and complete unfamiliarity with black people in real life for its power. Keane wants to be sure we realise how mind-bogglingly awful Grania's affair with Foley really is. Just as an aside, there are other references to black men, when Nan terrifies Aunt Pigeon with their potentially dangerous presence, like a bogeyman. I found these moments of racism quite upsetting. Using racial stereotypes consciously as a literary device, even if it's a deliberate attempt, perpetuates and reinforces racial hatred. But as bannable as the extramarital affair between the big house daughter and the servant's son was, Keane went further and added in an extramarital pregnancy as well. Gronia is actually happy to be pregnant by Foley, thinking that their great love will conquer all. But when she confesses her situation to Nan whose grandchild she is pregnant with, Nan wants her to end it. It turns out that Nan knows how to cook up herbal abortifacients, something that her mother learned when she worked in the big house. These DIY abortions, country style, were an integral part of Aragon because the fox men regularly raped the servants. In a daring move that must have caused the censors to hyperventilate, Keane wrote about sexual assault abortion and infanticide on the same page that is page 108 and this is Nan's mother explaining her time as a servant in Aragon and Nan's own conception I'm telling you Dymphnaia hide your looks child hide your beauty from the gentry it's a snap trap on your own leg now look pet for it's more than the mistress will see it There were noddings and whisperings and tales of child beds in the far corners of the big house and pale, heavy-breasted girls dragging themselves again about their work. Ah, Anne Daly was a whack hand at any business like that and the river is handy for any little things that you wouldn't want to be keeping. Dead, dear, she'd say, and aren't you lucky? Another cat for the river, she'd say, and she'd laugh. She'd glory in it, Twas like medicine to her. The young gentlemen were very great with Anne. She had a bedpost filled with pieces of gold they gave her and one way and the other she served them well. She was a great one for boiling roots and seeds at the right turn of the moon and a terrible effect they took if a girl went to her in time with her trouble. That's a lot. This is a woman explaining to her child her working conditions and also how she herself came to be made pregnant by the men of the house. As a long time keen reader, I was a bit shocked by this. The violence in her big house novels is usually psychological, but this is an unusually frank admission of other kinds of coercion. Keane must have been aware that to discuss abortion in Ireland in the nineteen forties was risky. To casually mention both abortion and infanticide like this in a breezy, matter of fact tone is a little breathtaking. The only hint that Nan's mother was traumatized is her repetition that her child remembered to stay in the light that dark corridors were dangerous. The abuser, Master Hubert, son of the big house, didn't even know her name, calling her child instead. This made me feel queasy. Was Nan's mother not even an adult when she was assaulted by the son of the big house? It's all very creepy. Nan herself is not upset by the story of her conception and is deeply proud of her fox heritage. Not much intergenerational trauma here. But Nan's son Foley has inherited some of the more unpleasant aspects of the fox character. He has an exalted cruel streak like his fox great-great grandfather. And this is where Keane really blew my mind. Not content with extramarital sex and pregnancy abortion, infanticide and rape, she introduces sexual sadism on page 193. For in the basement of Aragon is a locked, isolated room. About this room there remained still an air of past luxuries. White and gold pelmets over the windows, an Italian decoration on the ceiling, a thin marble mantle and steel basket grate. A strange room to find in the basements of Aragon, where hordes of servants had slept in dirt and confusion. Once the room had been hung with mirrors. Other curious contrivances were set in the walls. There was still an old ottoman covered in faded petty point, white roses, wreaths on a shadowy blue background. And it was locked. It was fifty years now since anyone had opened it and closed it, sick and shuddering at a half-understanding of delicate, ivy-headed, cutting whips and other fine and curious instruments. There's a bondage room in the basement of the big house. It's got mirrors on the walls and curious contrivances, maybe something used to fix people to the walls. This is crazy shit. I was gobsmacked Keane wrote this. She could have chosen gratuitous cruelty to small animals to explain an inherited taste for inflicting pain, but she decided to describe sexual torture? It's remarkable. Given the room is located in the servants quarters, I am sure that the master's pleasure was found in whipping servants who had little say in the matter. The bondage room and rape in dimly lit corridors shows how the glorious Aragon harbored powerful, dangerous energies. What's really fascinating is that all of the contradictions of Aragon the House are embodied not in the Fox family, but in the servant, Nan O'Neill. She's a magnetic and compelling character, the real heroine of the story. I asked Regan to explain the power of Nan as a character.
0: Nan is so much part of the house and so connected to all the generations of the house uh, through her illegitimacy or through her uh, genetic connection that she can communicate. And I found this also not typically Molly Keane. She can c- communicate with the dead or at least she can sense their presence. So she's walking down the corridor at nighttime and she feels something beside her presence and she puts her hand down to the level where a small child's head would be. And is aware that this is one of the ghost children who's come to walk with her along the corridor. She's utterly fearless. She doesn't have any sense of threat from them or fear. She just knows that she's part of them as much as the collections of portraits of ancestors on the wall. You know, she's she's surrounded by the living and the dead and she's utterly comfortable. I mean, that's astonishing. Her hair is always perfect. She takes great pride, I think, was it in her hands that are clearly the hands of, of you know, the foxes. And uh, she just has this possession that, um, like I say, Mrs. Fox doesn't even have. I don't want to cast her for anybody uh, who's not read the book. They can put this out of their heads the minute they hear. But do you know who, who was in my head when I visioned Nan Brenda Fricker, a very strong looking woman, um, maybe a little bit more glamorous than Brenda Fricker because Molly Keane keeps telling us how beautiful she is and how graceful she is. And I suppose it's important to say that Nan is what the children and the family call her. Her name isn't Nan, she's the nanny, Um, but they just call her Nan. Her name is uh, Dymphnia or something like that. She's a matron. Like she's the real. Like when I read it, I, I was thinking of like, you know, the nanny state. I was like, she's the embodiment of the nanny state. If the nanny state was a human being. It was Nan Foley. And for some reason, Brenda Fricker just appeared in my head. And I just thought, yep, you wouldn't mess with her.
2: There are nearly no limits to Nan's power. She single handedly and fearlessly takes on the IRA fighters who kidnap British soldiers. She strides through the countryside, locates the caves without any trouble. She fools the boy guarding the cave into thinking she's merely someone's mother with a message and then she knees him in the bollocks. I dare you to read this section without cheering Nan on as she puts them all in their place. This is the Irish Mammy on steroids. She doesn't even need a wooden spoon to put manners on the IRA. I wonder how this humiliation of the great freedom fighters, how their portrayal as children disciplined by a powerful matriarch was read by the censors. Did it make them uneasy to see the boys as children rather than swaggering patriots? But Keane's avenging Mammy in Two Days of Aragon is just one of her canon of mother figures, whether they be Mammy or Mama, as Regan pointed out to me.
0: Well, I mean, she does mothers like nobody else, as far as I can tell. I mean, our mothers are just astonishing characters. And it's funny because if you hear her talking about her own mother, you know, who seemed to be a very distant character in Molly Keane's life. Um, she seemed to have really little to do with her children, apart from those precious hours in the drawing room before dinner, before the kids were handed back. And um, that's often, that time of day is often in her books when the kids are allowed into the drawing room. Uh, you know, dearest mama and papa are sitting there not talking to the kids at all, barely taking any notice of them. And the kids are generally, in Molly Keen's books, they're doing their best to get their, the attention uh, from, from their parents. So mothers are uh, a figure. And in this book, I actually felt that Fostering was a theme as well because nobody seems to be taking care of their own children. Nan's child Foley, the ride, was actually brought up by his aunt Gypsy. Nan, meanwhile, was, you know, almost giving suck to the fox's children. I mean, she would if she could. She was just so determined to be the real mother of that house. So there's a sense that she abandoned her entire her own family for to look to, to look after the other family. Um, so you do get the sense throughout the book that mothers are, are kind of always, they're not quite doing what they're supposed to be doing anyway.
2: Leaving aside the great mother figure of Nan, the sibling rivalry between Gronia and Sylvia is the other important thread of the narrative. The family drama is a staple of Keane's novels, but Regan is trying to persuade me to read the sisters' dynamic as something deeper.
0: I have a little theory about them that is probably quite ridiculous. And the oldest one is very uh, prim and proper and very loyal to her class, uh, Sylvia. And the younger one, Gráinne, is is obviously wilder. She's having, I'd say, wonderful sex with Foley um and you know she's like not as interested in the way she looks and all of that kind of stuff and i was struck by her name grania which i'm not too sure but i didn't think would be a very common name uh, among the children of the big houses in the 1940s and it occurred to me foolishly maybe that uh they were somehow representing ireland and england you know, that Sylvia would be the very English character and Grania was this more wild, wayward Irish. uh, Irish. Well, she certainly was mixing with the Irish in in a way that Sylvia wouldn't dare or dream of. So I found that kind of interesting. And the book was published at a time when Ireland had declared its neutrality uh, in the Second World War, when I suspect a lot of people of Molly Keane's class Would have would well they were sending their sons over to fight uh, for you know fight in the Second World War, but also I suspect that many of Molly Keane's uh, class would have been kind of horrified that Ireland wasn't taking any part in fighting the Germans and fascism and stuff like that. So you 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 kind of. Yes, it was about the War of Independence. A lot of it was about England and Ireland. And you're kind of wondering, is she making a comment on the early 1940s when the book was published?
2: So the War of Independence offered Molly Keane a chance to explore Anglo-Irish relations in the context of neutrality and World War II. But where does this reading leave the all-powerful Mammy, Nan, and Foley, the stud? What is interesting about Two Days of Aragon? Is how the O'Neills, ostensibly servants, are on an equal footing with the gentry owners of the big house. Nan exerts her power over Aunt Pigeon through food, practically starving her. The poor old lady resorts to stealing thrush and blackbird eggs for food, which is quite disgusting. Nan threatens her with cold bats, completely dominating her, saying to the cowed old woman, let want be your master. While Nan's power in Aragon is absolute, her son Foley has earned respect because of his talent with horses. As Regan observed to me, the O'Neills and the Foxes are not in a conventional master-servant relationship.
0: I suppose the interesting thing about the relationship between the servants and their masters is that everything in, in the book is inverted and you have a butler called fraser whose constant refrain is i know my place and he knows his place and he also knows how to completely subvert that role by breaking the rules and by you know uh ingratiating himself with one member of the house over another and um but he's he's he he does it all as part of i know my place that's his um you know that's that's the most important thing for him, and he despises Nan's son Foley the Ride because Foley is essentially there to look after their horses and to you know it's a horse breeder and a trainer and all of that kind of thing. But he can be found sitting at their table, the tables of the Anglo-Irish, the neighbours, the friends of the family, and he's as comfortable sitting at the table and you know being served by the likes of Fraser as he is shoeing their horses and teaching their young girls how to, you know, uh, sit on a saddle. And that really upsets Fraser. And I think it's interesting because it's sort of like, you know, it's the danger again. He sees it as a danger that this young fella doesn't know his place. And if you don't know your place, God knows what can happen.
2: Keane often explored how masters and servants interacted in her big houses but this particular book ends with the expulsion of the powerful servant figures. Foley O'Neill exiles himself to escape the wrath of the IRA and the British army while his mother Nan meets a gruesome end. We're about to spoil the ending here but this book is 78 years old.
0: So we think Nan is going to survive at the end when the IRA men come to set fire to the house. And we kind of know from the beginning, really, that the house is going to be destroyed in the war. Like it's not a, obviously, we're spoiling it for all of you listeners, but um, that's just too bad. Uh, but the readers will know uh, pretty much early on that this is going to happen. And Nan is, through various um, intricacies of the plot, Nan is dragged to the bitter end And she's forced to witness this burning. And she, we, the reader, we think Nan is is going to survive. And then, yes, she's dispatched very clumsily, uh, not clumsy of Molly Keane, but clumsy of the person who dispatched her. Uh, It's almost totally accidental, in fact. And Nan is gone and the house is burnt down. And Molly Keane tells us uh, that, you know, the house will survive. It'll be rebuilt. There'll be children, Grania's children, interestingly, um, playing in the gardens uh, in years to come. And that's interesting, I suppose, because those houses thrive on order. They're built for the preservation of order. And Nan, by her existence, is the greatest threat to that. She She crosses all these kinds of lines. Like she's the... Illegitimate child uh, of the house. She's now the reigning um, matriarch, really, even though she shouldn't be. She's a servant. She is connected to the servant class, she's connected to the master class, she kind of knows everybody's secrets, and she transgresses those lines as well by torturing and abusing Aunt Pigeon. So she really is a threat to the house. In fact, she's a bigger threat to the house than the new Irish order, uh, which can burn it down, but, but it's rebuilt again. Uh, Nan had to go. She just had to go.
2: So in the end, the domineering but terrifyingly capable mother figure is wiped out. Foley's dangerous charm and sexy ass is on a boat to England, and Gronya has miscarried their child. All traces of the O'Neills, the servants who would be masters, has been destroyed. The smoking ruins of Aragon will be rebuilt and order will prevail once more. It's an odd ending for a big house novel written in the 40s, when the countryside was littered with gentry homes derelict since the burning of the 20s. Maybe the assertion of stability was a statement of hope in the face of World War Two. Okay, I should probably stop subjecting Molly Keane to literary criticism since she thought that sort of thing was very silly. But this book is rich and sophisticated enough to take it. It was a shame nobody could legally read it in Ireland until the ban had expired in 1967. So there's no prizes for guessing, but yes, I think this book is well worth a read. As a Molly Keane fan, I'd wholeheartedly recommend most of her books to you. She's got a devoted but small following of people like me and Regan who turn to Molly in times of need.
0: You know, she's my go-to comfort read, which is one of those big mistakes I always make when I go to my comfort reads because generally uh, it's like Jean Reese as well. She's another one. And generally they're like far from comforting. I mean, Molly Keane is not a comfort read. Sure, she's got her wonderful food and her elaborate Um, you know drawing room dramas and uh, shady gorgeous men that come over from England to really you know corrupt entire families but actually she's very disturbing Um, and I think anybody anybody who has you know any relationship with any member of their family will see echoes of the manipulation, psychological abuse, and you know sheer hatred and sibling rivalry or whatever Uh, there's tiny little traces of that in every life and Molly Keane just sort of amplifies them to such an extent that like you wonder why am I reading this for comfort
2: her books might be old and the glorious big houses almost a fantasy now but her stories of love obsession and cruelty are evergreen so now that I'm finished gushing about a book that I really love, it's time to play censorship bingo to see just how rude this book was. From the first line, there are actually no breasts in this book. That's an achievement. No bestiality, sex work or drugs. Yes, there are racist moments in this book. There's lots of dubious references to scary black men coming to take and Pigeon away. And that's not nice at all. On the second line... Politics. The IRA and the Anglo Irish relationship runs throughout the book, and I'm pretty convinced by Regan's theories on the sisters representing Ireland and Britain. So there is a lot of politics, especially in relation to collaboration with the IRA and how unwilling it was and often coerced by violence. This remains a pretty controversial topic in Ireland today, so I'm sure it pressed buttons for the censors in the 40s. There's no swearing. There's no infidelity. There's no crime unless you count resistance to British rule. There's no genitalia. Abortion. Absolutely. Quite extraordinary references to abortion. The homemade herbal remedies being cooked up within the big house by the legendary old servant Anne Daly and Nan's learning of those. I'd imagine this sort of folk knowledge terrified Irish censors since rural Ireland was supposed to be the heart and soul of authentic Catholic Gaelic Ireland. Drowning babies and decocting abortifacients was not the vision of Ireland they wanted. Sexual assault yes, obviously, the abortion was needed to deal with the consequences of the sexual assault. Extramarital pregnancy all of the servants' pregnancies by the gentry. But that's it, there is no other square on censorship bingo. There's no blasphemy, there's no graphic violence no sex toys, no divorce or contraception. So Two Days in Aragon scores a mere 5 out of 25. It's not a high score at all, but it's fairly typical of most of the books from season 1. By the standards of the banned books I've read so far, Two Days in Aragon is averagely rude. But the abortion references would have guaranteed a ban, even if Keane had not included rape and sexual sadism. And I'm fairly sure a mammy kneeing an IRA man in the balls was pretty shocking to the censors too. Next episode's book could not be more different. Next time, I will read out the rude bits from Aeneas Nin's A Spy in the House of Love. Nin is most famous for her erotica. She is considered one of the first women to write erotica. Or maybe more accurately, one of the first women whose erotica was published. Surely a woman who wrote properly rude stories will score high in censorship bingo. Until then, read a banned book and give two fingers to the long-dead censors. Season 2's book list is up on the website, censored.ie, but that's just a fraction of the banned list. If you want any recommendations for other banned books, I have a very, very long list of dirty books. Get in touch on Twitter, at censoredpod, Or Instagram, at Frednach if you want to learn more. Or just listen to me read out the Rude Bits for you. Whatever floats your boat.
1: At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need.
2: Is there anything you can't do?
1: Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. Ahem. The UPS nope but our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything at least that's good the ups store be unstoppable most locations are independently owned product services pricing and hours of operation may vary see center for details come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time
2: Acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend